This podcast is brought to you by the Oatmeal Wallet, available exclusively at tacticaloatmeal.com. Go buy yourself an Oatmeal Wallet, and when you go to check out, use the code COUCHCAST to save yourself 10%. Hey everyone, it's Josh Eccleston with Jobcast. In 2016, we have been on quite the hiatus. I apologize, but you know what? We're back and better than ever. This is, without a doubt, our best guest so far. Adam Einson, author of My Problem is Adam, joins us on the podcast. You know how every episode starts, well, it's, it's titled whatever their job is. Like it'll be the exotic dancer or it'll be the EMT intern or whatever. This one may be titled the author. I'm not exactly sure what we're going to title it. But if it is titled the author, don't be too misled here. It's not really about writing books. This, like the main content of this episode, is about the subject matter of his book, which is his struggles with addiction. It's really open, honest, interesting interview. I had a great time talking to Adam, and I have to thank the co-host, Alex, for setting up the interview. You may remember Alex from episode two of the podcast, and she is a great co-host for this one. So thanks to Alex. Thanks to Adam. Everybody just enjoy the show. Ryan kick the intro music. So, yeah, you're Adam, and you wrote a book recently. I did. Um, actually, I wrote it several years ago. I finished it in, I want to say, 2008. And so, for anyone who's not familiar with the process of writing a book and then trying to get it published, it's a very soul draining soul crushing process you know especially if it's about you because you're kind of like continuously going over these experiences and you're going to not want to embellish but you still want to make it interesting right no no doubt and 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 also the fact that when you're putting your work out there and it's getting rejected repeatedly and that's the life of a writer you Mm -hmm. know whether you write screenplays or books or anything like that you're going to get rejections and you actually hope for rejections. You know, that's better than crickets, you know, because if someone sends you an email back saying, I I read it and it just wasn't for me, you're like, yes, someone's actually reading my shit. Mm -hmm. You know, it's better than just hearing nothing. Um, But you do get rejected over and over again, even the successful ones, you know, before they become successful, uh, they, they thank you. They do get rejected repeatedly. And so that's why I say it's a, it's a soul draining process. And so, especially when it's about you, like in this case, the book is about me. 
So I try not to look at it that way, but it's not only a rejection of my writing, but it's like a rejection of my life. Right. <laughs> you know, so this isn't interesting. Right. Enough. Yeah. Like you, all that shit you went through isn't worth reading about. You know what I mean? And so again, that's a little neurotic, um, a little self-centered. I try not to look at it that way, but you can't help but have those thoughts creep in. And especially, you know, with what's in the book, me dealing with uh, clinical depression and everything, you know, yeah, those, those thoughts are a bitch. Right. <clears throat> and so, but yeah, I finished the book in about 2008 and I did, you know, I did my research on writing books and getting them published. And one of the things that was suggested was that you take about six months off once you finish your book. You know, and it'll be suggested like when you're writing a research paper or something mm -hmm. to take a day or two off and, you know, go back and look at it with a fresh, fresh set of eyes. But with something as big as a novel, you know, and my books completed 250 pages. It's not it's not a tome, but it's not small either. Um, so, you know, with something that big, though, they, they suggest uh, that you take like six months off and just do other stuff, keep writing, live your life and then come back and reread it with a fresh set of eyes and, you know, see what you want to change, what you want to leave in there. So that took up six months, but then the rest of the time, all these years later, it's like, I would go through parts of the process of, you know, trying to find a literary agent. And I'd go through that for a few months, not hear anything back or just get rejections. And then I would take some time off, you know, because that was just, killing me. And, and then I would get busy too. You know, that's a legitimate thing. I was legitimately busy with school and work and trying to have a life. But, you know, honestly, I could have found time to send out a few emails. You know what I mean? I could have, I just didn't want to. Hey, you're preaching to the choir over here, man. So it's, <laughs> it, I'm sure it was a lot of people just like, Oh yeah, the book that you're working on. Great. Just because, you know, I have a podcast right? and people are tired of hearing me say, I have a podcast. And then they're like, well, where the fuck's the next episode then? <laughs> right, you know right, what I mean? Right, right, yeah, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, you have podcasts. You release like every now and then whenever you fucking feel like it, that must be hard. And I'm like, Hey man, <laughs> it is hard. Well, no, it, it totally is. And especially because, you know, I have, I'm a big fan of this, uh, medium. I, I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time. And so you're actually letting me, uh, live a dream too. I mean, you know, n not even, so much like, yeah, it, it would be interesting to, to host my own podcast, but even more so than that, I've like always dreamed of being a guest. Now, when I was little, podcasts didn't exist. I, I dreamed of like being a guest on Conan or whatever, talking right. about my books or my movies or whatever. Hey, second best Josh Eggleston. You know? <laughs> no, totally, man. Hey, it, it could all start here for both of us, right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. we could just end up taking off and remember that time that, you know, I just self-published my book and, and you were doing your podcast out of your apartment and, you know, that's... Don't tell them that. This is, this is in a <laughs> professional studio. It's really fancy you're shit. You're all the secrets, Adam. Oh, soundproof know. walls. Like, this is some fancy bad. stuff. See, I'm too, I'm, I'm too comfortable, man. I'm just talking, you know. No, let them know. Yeah, it's, it's probably very obvious at this point. Well, with all the echo from previous episodes and everything. So, uh, May I say, though, when I listened to the podcast that you did with Alex, I thought the, the production quality was great. It sounded... Another shout out to Ryan. What's up, dude? Yeah. It, 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 it sounded... Ryan, not, not only did Alex... 
uh, conduct herself very well and make us mental health professionals proud. But, you know, you asked some great questions and, and yeah, it just flowed well. It was smooth. And so, yeah, I, I enjoyed listening to it in, in preparation for this. Oh, but, well, well, thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, go on, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> oh, stop, stop. Yeah, yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so, you know, w- what happened was like, I got to the SMU counseling program in 2011, 2010. I met Alex there at some point in time. Mm-hmm. I, I forgot exactly when we finally had a class together. Uh, Cultural diversity, <laughs> that awful class. Oh my God, uh, that was terrible. Yes, I mean, was. no offense yeah. to that class, but. And Anyone who took it knows. What the information was in. Very important. No, I'm Absolutely. not against cultural diversity. Oh my God, that sounds like a xenophobe right now. But, no, no, but no, no, no. That wasn't what he was saying. It the, was more so the structure of the class. And the, and the professors. And the professor Any subject can be made <laughs> right. terrible with a bad professor. Yes. So. so anyway, this is all part of the book too, though, was that I figured, you know, I had gone through that process, like I'd said, of, you know, sending out some emails, getting a little bit of interest maybe. Um, at one point in time, the the farthest it went was that uh, this literary agent who works for the firm that represents John Grisham actually wrote me back based on the query letter I had written to her. And a query letter is just like a half a page synopsis of your book pertinent uh, biographical information, a little bit of a sales pitch, you know, that kind of thing. You send it based on that. They say, all right, I'll read the first 10 pages of your book. And then it just kind of keeps going from there. And so the farthest things had gotten was that this lady who worked for that, that firm, she responded to my query letter, said, Hey, I want to read the first 10 pages or whatever. I sent her those. She said, all right, well, I want to read the whole thing. And so she read the whole thing and when she got back to me, this was clearly not a, a canned speech, you know, letter or whatever. Right. It was like personally written. She said, hey, it was great. Keep writing. Uh, keep trying to get this published. It's just not for me. I'm not the one to represent you. And so that was really encouraging, you know, but that was the farthest things had gone. So anyway, move forward a few years. I'm at the SMU program. Then my thought process is that, you know, once I get a degree in counseling, and become an an actual licensed mental health professional, that will make the story even better because Mm -hmm. it's a story about overcoming, you know, addiction and mental illness. And then I'll also have some letters after my name to make myself seem more credible. And now that the book's getting so, you know, that now you're legit, right? Totally. (laughs) And so now that I'm, I'm self publishing and it's, it's going to be out soon. Um, you know, it says Adam Einstein, MS, LCDC, you know, which is for Masters of Science, in this case, counseling, and then LCDC. I'm a licensed chemical dependency counselor. So it's that's awesome. So now it's not just a story of I used to be an addict and now I'm right, not. It's right. I used to be an addict and now I'm not, and I'm telling other people how to not be an addict. Exactly, exactly. And, and so that was part of the waiting there. You know, I kind of figured, like, I'll, I'll wait until... Um, you know, I get all this together, get these credentials, then I'll be less likely to get rejected, you know, whatever. So I didn't really try to put my book out there while I was going to school. Um, and then I tried again a little bit, but you know, I still wasn't getting anywhere with that. And then I just kind of got discouraged and, and again, got wrapped up in the rest of my life. 
um, you know, going to school, getting different jobs, relationships, whatever. And, and it would be kind of frustrating because I wouldn't talk to people about it. You know, I wouldn't tell them that I had written a book because to me, and, and, you know, I don't want to shit on anybody else's dreams and ambitions, right? right? For some people, if they can say to themselves, I wrote a book and that's awesome. Like good, good for you, man. If that's where it ends and, and you're just happy, if anybody reads it, like then awesome, more power to you. But for me, it was never like, Oh, I, I got to the top of the mountain. I wrote a book. It's like, I have dreams of being successful with it. Right. Right. So to me, it was almost more of an embarrassment. Like, yeah, I, I went through all this trouble. I actually wrote the book and, and I haven't been able to do anything with it. So like, I wouldn't tell people about it. And and this is just me being self-conscious too, but I also kind of felt like the, be a little bit douchey, a little bit pretentious, like, I'm an author. Hey, once again, you're preaching to the choir. I'm serious. <laughs> I have a podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're like, yeah, look at you with a curling mustache. Get the fuck out of here. Like, we know that you have a podcast without asking you. So, <laughs> no, I feel you. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I, I wouldn't really tell anybody about it. And then, you know, every now and then someone who knew about it would tell other people. And, I, and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I wrote a book, you know. And they'd say, oh, what it, what's it called? And I'd tell them, it's, you know, it's my problem is Adam. And, and I'd tell them what it's about and everything. And, and now you're talking about your own problems to people that maybe right. you don't talk to them about anyway. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, although, you know, I, I am pretty much an open book with all that. If anything, I have to uh, check myself. You know what I mean? Like, I have no problem. If someone asks me, like, what's your book about? And it is about all that shit. Like I'll just kind of go right into it. Um, Perfect. Cause that's what we're going to do. <laughs> all right. Go, <laughs> go ahead, man. Ask, ask away. So it's called <clears throat> my problem is Adam. Right. So it's not a biography. Yes. Another pretentious word would be a memoir. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. That use sounds that so one. fancy. <laughs> I know. Officially it's, it's my problem is Adam, a story of recovery. That's the little subtitle there. So subhead, whatever you want to call that. So, which, um, by the way, I want to just chime in and say yeah. how much I love the title personally. Well, um, thank you. Because I love that self-identification, um, in terms of your battle and your struggles and identifying, you know, your importance in the role of recovery. And I feel that's a major piece for a lot of people who are struggling out there. And so I found it very profound and very relatable and was ideal of what you should title it. So, well, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I do have to give credit where it's due, though. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Other person who yeah, gave him the idea. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. I can't take credit for the title because <clears throat> when I was going to AA and NA, and, you know, whoever listens to this might send in a letter about, you know, you're supposed to maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films and whatever, like, whatever, man, I'm, I don't. You know, I don't go to AA or NA anymore, and we can talk about that later. I would love to talk about that, actually, because I'm not dogging it. It just stopped working for me. In my experience, AA is the least anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, and just, you know, real quick, the reason that they have that there is because a lot of celebrities are in AA or NA or whatever A. There's a lot of A's yeah. out there. Uh, 
And they don't want any one member to be bigger than the group. And they also don't want some person to have this big public failure in their recovery. And then it's like it makes the whole group look bad and and that sort of thing. And and so that's why it's maintaining anonymity at press, radio, and films. And this is a form of radio. So whatever I'm talking about it, it's fine. I I just don't want to go through all that bullshit of saying the the self-help group, the support group, whatever. It's like I, I was going to AA and NA, right? Like I did for about a year and a half, um, the first year and a half of my recovery. And, and, and we can get into everything that led up to that in a minute, but, but where the title of the book came from was that there was this AA meeting that I was going to in Dallas and I'll just use your name to protect other people's anonymity. Sure. No one's going to know this guy cause I'm not saying his last name. I don't know his last name, but we'll just say his name was Josh <clears throat> and he, you know, at an AA meeting, if you've never been to one, people will say, you know, I'm an alcoholic and my name is Adam, right? And so this guy said, I'm an alcoholic and my problem is Josh. You know, and, and I, people would laugh when he would say that. He was like the only one who said it. It was kind of his thing. And so I went and talked to him about it after a meeting. I was like, that's really cool, man. I, I really identify with that. It, it's funny and it's different, but it's also like Alex was saying, it's really profound, because you're acknowledging the fact that like it all starts and ends with me. You know, I'm my biggest problem. I'm also the solution to my problem. And I hope people find that part of it empowering that I'm not like, de- it's not self-defeating. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not that at all. It's not meant to be that. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I told him, I was like, I really dig that. And he's like, oh, I got it from somebody else. You can totally say that if you want to, you know. And so who knows? It's like who invented a joke or whatever, you know. It's right. like I, I don't know who actually said that first in a meeting. but And it was funny because he didn't tell me to do this, but like I didn't want to step on his toes and say it at that meeting that he was at and look like I'm copying him or whatever. So like it became my thing at other meetings. I would say, you know, like I go to NA meetings and I'd say I'm an addict and my problem is Adam. And, you know, people who hadn't heard it before, they would laugh and whatever. And, and, you know, I had that same experience where people would come up and say, oh, that's really cool. And I'd, you know, circle of life. I was like, yeah, I got it from someone else. You can say it too. But, uh, so yeah, that's the reason for the title of the book. Not only is it, you know, that statement of, you know, I am the problem. I'm also the solution, but it actually came from a recovery meeting. So that's awesome. That makes it even better. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So 2008 is when you finish this book. So when did you get your, I guess, when did you consider yourself recovered? I still don't, um, that, and, 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 you know, I don't want to get too much into semantics and whatever, but it, it is a philosophy of people in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, and, and, and you had said earlier, and, and like I said, I don't, you know, I don't want to be a dick and like step all over people's words and everything, but my belief in, in what I was taught and what I bought into and what I still buy into to this day is that I still identify myself as an addict in recovery in the sense that, you know, recovery is a lifelong process. So now in the literature, it does say we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, right? So you have recovered past tense from that seemingly hopeless state, although you can go right back there if you don't take care of yourself or if a bunch of shit happens. But Mm -hmm. In, in the sense of like, I'm no longer an addict, I totally am. Because, you know, if I pick something up 
and make that choice to use again, it's going to all start right back over. To say that I'm not an addict anymore would mean that I could use or drink socially. And, and, you know, and I think this is something important to bring up to people out there, whether, you know, you're a person in recovery or, you know, someone in recovery, like Alex asked before I came over here, you know, she was very kind. She's like, Hey, you know, and I don't want (laughs) to, I don't want to reveal too much here, but she's like, Hey, sometimes we drink when we do the show. Uh, hundred percent of the time. <laughs> right. Usually right. always. <laughs> right. Right. And she said, you know, I might've minimized a little. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so she was very courteous and, and, and respectful. And, and, you know, this comes from her being a great person, but also her counseling background, you know, she was like, Hey, we, we drink sometimes when we do the show and we don't have to tonight because you're going to be here. And I tell her the same thing. I tell everybody when they ask me that, like, I appreciate the concern. Um, always ask anybody that's in recovery, ask them that. Don't assume that just because you asked me and I said right. it was cool that it's going to be the same for anybody else. But for me, this is another recovery term that you'll hear, but like I had that obsession lifted. And so in that sense, you know, kind of what you were talking about, about being recovered as opposed to in recovery. But I had that obsession to use lifted very early on in my recovery. I can't totally explain why that happened for me and it doesn't happen that way for other people but you know I have no desire to use whatsoever so it's like y'all can drink it up you could be smoking pot if you wanted to like I don't care it doesn't bother me but you know again to people who know someone in recovery always check with them first Mm -hmm. and to people in recovery I would say like you know, don't do that just because I do it. You That's know, a powerful message. Well, I, I mean, seriously, because like I'm not a role model for everybody else's recovery in that sense. I've been clean and sober for almost 11 years now. Um, so I've got some experience there and, and that's, you know, that that's a decent amount of clean time. Right. But I also, I live my life a certain way and, and that way includes that you know, I still go out with my friends when they are drinking and I'll be the designated driver. And for a while there in my recovery, I was living with some of my best friends from high school. And every Sunday when we were sitting around watching football, they were passing the bong like right in front of me, you know, and like, I didn't care. They asked me beforehand, like, dude, are you sure this is cool? And I was like, yeah, I would tell you if it wasn't, I wouldn't put myself in jeopardy. So that's just my experience, though. I would never suggest for for anybody else to do that. Um, But yeah, so in that sense, like, I don't have that obsession anymore. I don't think about it, you know. So what were, so it was alcohol and apparently cannabis that were the two things that you used, or was it more? No, I, like... This isn't a, a term that you'll hear in in recovery groups. It's and and, and there's a, a sort of a dark sense of humor there where it's like okay to talk about yourself this way or, or other people in recovery this way. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just you'll have to bear with me on that. Like I'm not again, I'm not putting myself down, but I'll just say like I was a garbage can. You know that, and that's something a lot of people have said where it, it doesn't matter what kind of drugs you used, you just put garbage in your body because you would do anything that would make you feel different. Right. And, and that gets into the whole self-medicating thing, you know, of why a lot of people start using to begin with. But, you know, I, uh, you know, alcohol was my first. Um, and that was, that started at a really young age. Mm-hmm. And then weed came after that. 
And then from there, it's like, you know, cocaine caused me a lot of problems. Pills did, you know, opiates and, and benzos, you know, like uh, Xanax and shit like that. Um, you know, and I tried a little bit of everything else. And it, and it's just so funny because like <laughs> when I would say stuff like, oh, I only smoked crack a couple of times, it's like normal people don't like ever think about right. smoking crack. You know what I mean? Right. So like I could minimize it and say like, oh, I only did it a couple of times, you know, but it's like most people are like, oh, I wouldn't want to do that shit, you know? So yeah, there's a little bit of that. Um, you know, you know what wet is? I've never even heard of that. Is I'm that surprised. The, uh, dipping in embalming fluid. Yeah, smoking so embal- like a, a cigarette or a joint or a mm-hmm. blunt or whatever in embalming fluid formaldehyde. Oh. What does and that do? Smoking it's it. similar to PCP. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Like, but it's it, more intense on the um, psychotic side of hallucinations and things like that. Adam could probably. No, no, de- no, Alex. That was a very good clinical answer for sure you're welcome um, yeah i have a lot of clients that do that's well <laughs> and and see like if you've ever watched an episode of cops and you've mm-hmm. seen a person that's running through the streets half naked or naked and it takes like 10 people to bring them down chances are they had smoked that wow you know um for me and, and i've had other people share this same description of it 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 made everything like a video game. You know what I mean? Like when I was, that was like the hallucinogenic property and I'm not trying to glamorize it or glorify it. I'm just telling you, like when I looked around, everything kind of had tracers around it like that. And it, and it was like, I wasn't seeing things that weren't there, but it was almost as if like the world around me it was like, had been uh, turned into a video game. What's it called? okay i'm not gonna think of the vocabulary right now but like that's a a new thing that they are doing with video games where it's like an overlay over what reality is so they're kind of like placing things on top of it or you could just smoke some from (laughs) out same effect (laughs) yeah totally but but so you know again like and and that's something that i i told you that because you asked and, and i have no problem sharing about it but one of the things that you know, you'll hear in, in meetings, you know, is that we try not to get too specific about what drugs we did just because we don't want people to feel different. You know, support groups are about bringing people together and bringing people together in recovery, you know, whether you're in an NA meeting or not. And I'm just like talking to anyone in recovery who might be listening, you know, it's that because I used to do that. I used to say like before I had ever smoked crack, I'd be like, Oh, that person's a crackhead, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it just so happened that I never ended up shooting heroin before I got clean. Uh, the only time I was around it, I was like 15. And so I just Jeez. wasn't ready at that point in time. I was smoking weed with some people that did it and, and I saw it and then I just wasn't ready. If I had seen it again, if that opportunity had presented itself like sometime before I got clean when I was like 19, 20, 21, because 21 is when I got clean, I might have done it and I'd probably be dead because of the way I use drugs and and heroin is one of those that will kill you when you overdo it. You can die from overdoing a lot of things, but heroin especially. Yeah, real fast. Yeah, totally. But so that was a way of me saying like that I wasn't as bad as other people. You know, not to judge them, but to say like, I don't have a problem. I don't need to quit. I'm not doing this, this, and that. You know, I think that's such a common response because I'll have clients who will smoke weed on a daily basis or they're like, well, I've only like used cocaine on the weekends. Mm -hmm. 
And but I'm like, how much cocaine? Oh, like a whole eight ball, right? By myself over right. a whole weekend. Okay, well that's quite an excessive amount uh-huh. rather than just snorting a line of cocaine. And then you have the addicts that'll say like, well, at least I never stuck a needle in my arm, so that I don't I don't consider myself an addict. But I shoved ex- but ecstasy I do, up my ass. So yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or I smoked wet, but right, whatever. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah. I didn't have the needle in my arm every day, so that yeah. makes me different. And yeah. it's very interesting. And I'm wondering, Adam, and you can speak to this, yeah. is it like a perspective of how society views what addiction is? Or what do you think contributes to that? Is it a, a denial phase? Is it like, what? what is it that's driving that? It's addiction has been described as the disease that tells you you don't have a disease, right? And, and so a lot of people don't want to see it as a disease. Again, that's my framework based on not only the uh, clinical experience that I have going to school and working in a psych hospital and all that. I, I definitely see addiction as a disease, but also that's the model that I was brought up with in rehab and then going to meetings. It's not a moral shortcoming. It's a disease. So when you have a disease that's telling you you don't have one, that's mm-hmm. one of the tricks your mind plays on you. Sure. You know, that's a way of feeding it and keeping it alive is that I don't have to quit because I don't do this stuff. Now, society definitely plays a big role in it, especially with marijuana. Mm-hmm. For the record, you know, I'm, I'll just say it, I'm pro everything. Like really, I, I, I think the, the way that a lot of places in Europe do things is great. Needle exchange programs, people are going to do it anyway, you know, regulate it and, and, and make it cleaner and safer. You know, that, that's just my opinion. I agree with you. Because otherwise you're throwing people in jail over yep yeah. and we wonder why our jails are overcrowded yeah sure. that, you know right so again i'm you know whatever and it's not we'll, like that's free to throw them in jail by the way right. it's very very expensive to tax right it is and, very and, and and by the way how many people do you know that would just start shooting heroin because it became legal right not very many right so anyway <laughs> didn't mean to go off on a tangent there but my point is like with with marijuana i'm definitely pro marijuana because i'm i'm pro everything as far as it being legal mm-hmm. people using it that's up to consenting adults. But society has given us this view that, that marijuana is either not a drug or that it's not addictive. And it absolutely is addictive. Um, right before I went into rehab, I had pretty much quit using everything else. Um, for the last year or so I had, you know, dabbled in pills and Coke. I'd mostly left that stuff behind, but I was drinking and smoking all day, every day, like literally from the time I got up to the time I went to bed at work, my smoke breaks were cigarettes and weed. Like I stayed high and I would drink on the job and I kept getting promoted and shit and, you know, so like whatever. Um, I was working at a newspaper, you know, I was an editor and a writer at the time. And so like, and and I'm 20, 21, you know, just, it's like, I'm living the dream. I'm going to be Hunter S. Thompson, you know? So it's like, (laughs) it was also socially acceptable. Give you a book. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, totally. So, you know, but, but with, uh, with the marijuana thing, like toward the end there, I, I I clung so desperately to to smoking weed for the rest of my life because it's beautiful. It's from the earth, man, you know, and all that bullshit. And, you know, so the last couple of weeks before I went into rehab, I had quit drinking too. 
I was just still smoking weed all day, every day. Granted, I'm a dual diagnosis person, which means, you know, I have substance abuse, substance dependence issues, and I've been diagnosed with a severe major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. So there were other things at play there, but I will say that like for those last two weeks, I was just smoking weed. And then when I went into rehab, I went through withdrawals. Like seriously, I, it's kind of nasty, but I, you know, I had to change my socks a couple of times a day because I was sweating so much and like Mm -hmm. my skin felt like it was crawling and, so you had legit weaned off everything yeah. besides weed, and right. you're having withdrawals. But you from were weed. only you were only smoking. You said at that time, right? And, and so you had gone through your other withdrawals right. from your heavier substances. Right, before that. right. Okay. And and so some people might think that that's kind of bullshit. Um, here's what I would say though: even if those were more like physical manifestations of my psychological problems from not smoking. Right. Totally. It's like, okay, if weed is, if being off of weed is giving me such bad anxiety that I'm going through all that shit, that means I'm still addicted to it. Right. Like, you know, weed can definitely, definitely be a form of escapism. So even if you're just trying to escape from something, then just the anxiety of entering back into the reality of whatever your situation is could just be, intense anyway oh yeah and and we definitely it heightens certain things you know you'll hear people say like this jokes about it like oh it makes sex awesome and it makes food taste great and you know whatever but it's like it does numb a lot of things out and and you know that's what happened when i got clean was it's like oh shit i have to feel things like really intensely now you know and and so that's where that dual diagnosis thing really came into play is like all this time i convinced myself and, and alex i know you can speak to this too a lot of people that have mental health issues will use drugs and they'll say, man, it's the only way I can stay sane. Mm -hmm. Deluding themselves that like, okay, maybe the weed isn't helping your bipolar. You know what I mean? It might just be making it worse, you know, but people convince themselves and try to convince other people that like, and I was one of those, you know, it's like, dude, I'm already so fucked up that if I stopped using drugs, things would be way worse. So like Mm -hmm. I have to keep doing them. I was going to ask to Adam in your um, excerpt that you sent me, I read a little snippet about there was a pretty profound statement in there where you said um, the depression and substance abuse were two totally separate things, that they were like two, those things are treatment are two separate. So can you kind of elaborate on that? For yeah, I had, I had one person who, because I, I, I put a post about your book and ha- had people ask questions. Oh, and one cool. of the questions was related to that. It was... Would you say that the depression led you to the drugs or the drugs led you to depression or were they completely isolated? Okay. So first off, um, Alex, I, if I remember correctly, the part of the book that you're talking about might be a conversation that I was having with my mother. Yeah, it might have been. Okay. Okay. Because I think... So I did not do it justice. No, 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 no. It's okay because there's an important distinction to make here. Okay. Because... If that's what I remember correctly, remember, like, I wrote this book and I've edited it and rewrote it. So, like, I could probably just start the book right now, you know? So, like, I remember pretty clearly, I think that's a conversation I was having with my mother. She was visiting me in the psych hospital after I had attempted suicide. Uh And people were telling me in there in the hospital, they were saying, like, hey, if you stop doing drugs, maybe you won't be so fucking depressed. 
you know, and that's when I told mom very, you know, indignantly, like, cause she was like, well, maybe they're right. You know? And, and I just said, no, I think those are two totally separate issues. So I, in that sense, like that was me, um, being deluded, being in denial. So no, I, I don't okay. think that they're two totally separate issues in that sense. I do think they are separate issues in the sense that you need to treat them both. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because say, for example, if you stop using drugs, stop drinking, but you don't do anything to take care of your baggage, even if you stay sober, what we would call that in recovery is being a dry drunk. Mm-hmm. Meaning that you're still a drunk, you're still a miserable son of a bitch, but you're dry. You're just not drinking anymore because mm-hmm. you haven't dealt with your baggage. So in that sense, they are two separate issues. Right. Um, and to answer your question, Josh, and the, and the question that other people posed, specific to me, mm-hmm. I would say that the depression definitely came first mm-hmm. because it hit me at such an early age I was a profoundly serious and withdrawn and morbid child, like mm-hmm. even as early as I can remember. And my mom will Wasn't tell people at around age eight. Adam, yeah, the, no, and this is what's crazy. Some people might, and and you know, this gets into like what I heard Alex ta- y'all talking about on the podcast, where you know you're talking to her about her job and everything. You know, with suicide. Uh, the first time I tried to kill myself, I was, I was eight, mm-hmm. you know, and people would really wonder like, what the hell could an eight year old be so depressed about? Like he doesn't have a family or a job or, you know, whatever to worry about. Um, but you know, ever since I could remember, everything was just really dark, you know, and my mom will tell people that like from a very early age, I was very preoccupied with death. You know, I was constantly like, I didn't want to get old, even though I was like four, (laughs) you know, I was like just really obsessed with that. And I was worried about other people getting old and dying. Um, I had trouble sleeping. uh, And, and, you know, like I said, I was more serious than I should have been, you know, just way more uh, sort of like morose and somber and And so through dealing with all that depression and stuff, I would, you know, I would share with some people. I'd be like, man, I just don't even want to live. And and could you imagine saying that to another eight year old? Like, what the hell are they going to do with that? Right. Right. And so the the first time I I tried to kill myself, I, um, I was over at my dad's house. My parents were divorced. They had been for a few years. And I was by myself in his room that we would share, you know, I was by myself in there. And I got one of his neckties and I just, I wrapped it around my neck and yanked on it. Now, granted, like, I mean, people can die from asphyxiation that way, but it's not like I, you know, strung it up and and stood on a chair and tried to hang myself. But the intent was there. Like, Mm -hmm, I I thought that would work, you know, and I wanted it to. Um, And, and, you know, I just kind of gagged and puked a little bit and, and, you know... But for people that say that a suicide attempt and a quote unquote unsuccessful suicide attempt, which is, you know, a horrible oxymoron there, but uh, an unsuccessful suicide attempt, you know, people would say like, oh, that's just a cry for help. If you really meant it, you would, you would have done it. Well, I was eight years old and I didn't tell anybody about that for like, till I went to rehab. 
So how, how is that like a, a cry for help if I don't even, if it's not around anyone and I don't mm-hmm. even tell anybody about it, you know what I'm saying? Right. So <clears throat> that was at such an early age. I can always remember being that depressed. Now I started drinking like very soon thereafter because I'm the youngest of four. My parents get divorced when I'm like five and I was a big surprise baby. You know, like we were all surprises, but my two sisters and my brother are just a couple of years apart. Me and my older sister were seven years apart, you know, so there's a big gap there. And so I'm like nine years old. She's 16. Mom is out. We're not living with dad. They're divorced. Mom's out a lot because she's working two or three jobs to keep a roof over our head. And, and, uh, you know, cause she didn't work the whole time that she was married to my dad. She was keeping up with four kids and keeping house. And, you know, she's an awesome mom. And, uh, you know, but she didn't have any work experience and didn't have right. a college education. So she had to do what she had to do. And so we, we were just at home alone a lot. And, and this is all in the book. So no one's going to, you know, get their feelings hurt over me telling this story. Right. But, but Julie was throwing a party like she did often. Um, and there's a bunch of 16 year olds drinking and smoking dope and stuff. And there I am nine years old and, and I'm the center of attention. They were all great to me. I, I loved her friends. They were like other sisters and brothers and they'd play video games with me and, you know, kind of beat me up, like in a good way, like, you know, toughen me right. up and we'd, right, fi- we'd play fight. Yeah. Thing. Grab ass roughhousing, you know, whatever. I loved it. What I also loved was that you know, all her friends were super hot <laughs> and, and like, I'm just, I'm the cute little brother, you know, and they're always hugging on me and kissing me on the cheek and stuff. And it was great. And so like, it was weird. Cause I had, I had always been so obsessed with old age and I didn't want to get older, but in that case I did want to be older. You know what I mean? I mm-hmm. wanted to be a part of that life. And so they were all drinking. Julie was gone for the record. She had gone to, you know, make a beer run or a weed run or whatever. Who knows why she was gone that time that night. But I was there with all the rest of her friends and a couple of them like offered me some beer and they did not force it on me at all. I wanted it. And I think I drank like four or five or something. And I, I, yeah, (laughs) like I was like nine. Yeah. And I, and I got hammered. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and from that point on till I was like about 14, I would sneak alcohol whenever I could, because once you get to be 14 or 15, you can kind of find people to buy it for you. Maybe when you're like nine, <laughs> you know, most people aren't going to give you booze, but I would like sneak it out of my grandma's cabinet and whatever. Um, and like my cousin's that were a couple years older than me, they still weren't drinking. They're only like 11 <laughs> or 12, but I would love to drink around them and act like an idiot because it was funny. Like I was entertaining and that was sort of my place in the world. You know, I felt a, a purpose and I felt good and I, and I felt like I mattered. Um, you know, and, and I don't know why I was so bankrupt in that way, you know, cause I, I had very loving supportive parents, but you know, being the, the youngest child and divorce happens and everything, maybe, you know, some things kind of just got, I don't want to say neglected. That seems a little harsh, but, but, you know, people were busy with a lot of other shit. Yeah. Obviously if I was able to like get drunk and stuff, you know what I mean? So, um, so yeah, that, that's what I was looking for was something to, to make me feel better. And I, and I found it. So, you were surrounded by that and you, do you think you were already 
like way too deep at that point or were you just kind of like okay this is normal to me I'm not even in middle school yet but I know what alcohol is and I know what the effects are and so then it made it easier to try whatever else oh yeah no doubt um and and you know that, that's something I want to point out is, yeah, is yeah. people are always is blaming weed as the gateway drug <laughs> and what's the most common drug used in society alcohol and what's the, I would say it's the most common first used drug too for people who are trying things. Um, but you know, like studies will show it, it bears it out that the younger somebody uses anything, the more likely they are to develop a problem with it. You know, Mm -hmm. that's just a fact, but you know what I have to say about the whole gateway thing is that I think it's bullshit. I I think it's pretty much circumstantial because if you're going to try a drug for the first time, Mm -hmm what are you going to try? You're going to try what's there and you're right. right, You're going to try what's available and you're going to try what you're probably not quite so scared of. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're in, in, in what people are more likely to give you now, granted I hear shit, you know, and and I'm sure Alex, like you've heard some stuff too Mm -hmm. from clients and whatever of of people doing meth when they're that young. Like that's, that's just horrible. It, but it happens, but it's normal. To them, to them, when they're right. fourteen, and right. what their dad are using or cooking exactly, it in the trailer. exactly. So that kind <laughs> Not of stuff. Not to be a stereotype. No, but it's true. <laughs> you know what? If the shoe fits, but but uh, but yeah. So, but the reason why I say that the, the gateway thing doesn't really add up to me is is that it's just a matter of circumstance. Like, what are you going to try first? And so, a lot of people try alcohol first and never do anything else. A lot of people try alcohol and then weed and then never do anything else. It's just for people like me who are wired that way, who have this disease, you know, then it's like you get to a point where this isn't enough. You know what I mean? Or like, I'm getting tired of the same old thing. I want something different. So... Playing devil's advocate of the gateway drug theory, mm-hmm. uh, which I am typically not a fan of myself. Right. But you were talking about being wired that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, I don't know this like you guys know this. Sure. Um, I just have heard shit. It's yeah, fucking yeah. bro science right now. So bear with me. <laughs> but I've heard that like with depression, it, it, it it's like kind of a rewiring. Like it's a more efficient travel of neurons to be that way more often. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think is first of all is that true at all or am I talking nonsense like can you isn't it kind of like a you your wire like it becomes you the mean norm your brain chemicals are wired differently than if you don't have depression yeah I guess so okay. so do you think that is it like you're wired that way or do you think maybe because you were experiencing all of these drugs that you were becoming more efficient to Oh no 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 it yeah it I think it's both I mean mm-hmm. I was definitely wired for depression and if I had never done drugs because I was you would have still had depression. because I was raised in a compound you know that right. and I was never exposed to those things I would have still had depression mm-hmm. was exacerbated by the drugs for sure and, and especially that I was abusing depressants you know years later when I was in therapy you know, like that's what my therapist said. And that's what the people at the hospital said too. But my therapist was like, you were drinking and smoking and eating depression. You know what I mean? Like, like why do you think that that doesn't matter? Um, you know, and of course my argument was that I feel better. Cause while you're doing it, it's such an extreme difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, but you know, I don't know how much I want to get into this, but it's like there, there are, 
there's there's debate about what exactly causes depression and i read this book called the anatomy of an epidemic and and, and you know for the record the author um was not a licensed clinician of any kind he's a journalist but he did a lot of research and conducted interviews with doctors and, and professionals and everything and so there's some debate about whether depression is actually caused by a serotonin deficiency yeah. or not mm-hmm. you know so like it it you know we're taught that it you know that that's what it is and that's why people take antidepressants which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and also drugs by the way right yeah <laughs> right totally so you know I'm not a neuroscientist, you know, we, through the course of getting a counseling degree, especially depending on where you go to school, you get a a differing level of, of, you know, training in that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think it'd be wise for anybody in mental health to get more training on that, to be more aware of these kind of things. But, but, but yeah, there's so much of it that we still don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so as far as when I say wiring, and stuff like that. I kind of just mean in the general sense that, that, you know, I firmly believe that I was born with an abnormality. And, and I use that more clinical term because I don't, you know, I could say something was wrong with me, but that seems like I'm condemning myself or someone else or whatever. But, you know, if I just say like abnormal, yes, that's the opposite of normal, right? And so I, I'm not, I wasn't, and I'm still not in that sense. So there's something within my body, within my brain that makes me feel different ways. You know, it makes me feel a different way from the depression standpoint. And it also makes me respond to drugs in a different way from other people. And it is an abnormality in that sense. You know, like the two of y'all, and I'm sure... You've gotten hammered plenty of times too. What? How dare you? I don't want to. I don't want to throw stones here. But <laughs> I'm saying y'all have also. You know, you can have like a beer, or a glass of wine, or yeah. or a you know a cocktail. Mm-hmm. I never did that in my life. Mm-hmm. Like literally, I if I had one, I was having at least six. You know, and that would be like just you know if I'm mixing in some weed and some coke and some pills too. But like. More often than not, it's like I got drunk every time I drank. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could say that it's because, well, you know, here's another thing people will say all the time. I could quit. I just don't want to. Um, But if you have all this horrible shit going on in your life and you still don't want to quit, isn't that a problem to, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, I mean, again, it's really interesting and there's all these theories and, and you know, all kinds of stuff, but, and, and I think it's valuable to know, but at the same time, it's like, what I do know is that because I'm different, I have to take care of myself in a different way than other people do. I have to, you know, I, I have this disease and if you look at it or these two diseases, I guess, you know, when you look at depression too. And so, you know, if someone has diabetes, they have to manage things differently, you know, and, and so it's no, it's no different than that as far as I'm concerned, where it is different and where it's hard to, you know, hold up this argument is that you can't have a blood test or anything that Mm -hmm. says you have depression or yeah, you, you know, do this uh, swab and it's like, oh yeah, you're an addict. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't work that way. And you also end up with this double-edged sword 
of people saying, oh, I have a disease, so like I can't help it, you know, and that's a problem too. Mm-hmm. So, because you've got to do the treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, right. And, and, you know, I mean, that's where, like, once you've been exposed to education about your disease, then at that point, like, people are making choices. You know, when you know what kind of treatment is available to you and you have, and you put some support systems in place and you figure out what's good for you and in, in your life. Um, then when you stop making good choices and fall back into that pr- uh, pit of depression and or drugs, mm-hmm. then, then, you know, taking that first drink and then not being able to control yourself, that's the disease, I would say. But making that decision to take that first drink or making all those decisions that led up to it, because that's the thing. People want to act like, oh, it's just I took that drink and I didn't know what happened. You know, but I would argue that more often than not, people were doing something in their life that wasn't healthy that led up to them just taking that drink like like they didn't even realize they were doing it. You know, that's an interesting one for me because because, like I said, alcohol's the most commonly accepted drug in our society. Mm-hmm. It's so weird to me that a commonly accepted excuse by people who aren't, quote, addicts is, oh, I'm sorry, I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um you know and, and that's a, a different issue too uh you know because I, I would argue that when somebody does something and, and this isn't backed up by any kind of clinical evidence mm-hmm. I don't think this is just, just my this is just my experience and my gut feeling about it is that if you cheat on somebody because you were drunk and you're like hey man I was blacked out I don't even remember it unless someone like takes advantage of you in that situation, you know, I would say that if you do something while you were drunk, that it was probably somewhere in you to do it Mm -hmm. to begin with. And the alcohol just brought it out. You know, like if you only hit your wife when you're drunk, you know what I mean? Like that had to be in you to begin with of all the times that I blacked out and like drove and had no recollection of it whatsoever. I, when I was 14, I flew on a plane from Italy to Germany and didn't remember any of it because I was blacked out. Um, you know, in all those times that I blacked out, and again, I'm not saying this to make myself higher than anybody. It, it's just a fact that like in all those times that I blacked out, I never hit a woman. I didn't cheat on a girlfriend. You know what I mean? I did all kinds of other really scary shit, you know, in terms of like self harm, putting myself in bad situations and whatever. And I was an emotional wreck. I was just a blubbering mess a lot of times, but you know, it wasn't in me to do those things, you know? And, and so, yeah, to, to argue that like, oh, I was drunk or whatever. I think that stuff's got to be somewhere in your core. I don't understand why people don't acknowledge that so much because we like, okay, if, if anybody ever gets hit by a drunk driver, mm-hmm. they're like, this fucking drunk hit me. What a fucking asshole. How is he right, going right. to do that? Yeah. And then they, they know they know that it wasn't just the alcohol. They're mad at that person for making the decision to get drunk and then drive. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yet, I've seen it. I've, I've known mm-hmm. people who mm-hmm. those same people who were hit by a drunk driver will then drive drunk. 
and then think it's not a big deal, but on top of that, make excuses about their own behavior outside of driving and say, oh, it was alcohol, and somehow that's different than driving while you're drunk. But you acknowledge that that was entirely your decision, and the law acknowledges that that was entirely your decision. But people skirt around it all the time. I yeah, no, no, and there's there's just layers and layers of, of hypocrisy here, but you know, it, you do make a good point that it's not just people that are what you would consider alcoholics or addicts that are doing this. You know, it's, it, it's people that drink socially. And so do I think anybody who's ever gotten a DUI is an alcoholic? No. Are they right. making a poor decision? Yeah. And how many of us, you know, again, I'm not going to call y'all out again <laughs> this time, but how many of us, like I never got a DUI for all the times that I should have. And I know a lot of people out there who are not what I would consider alcoholics who drink socially have still driven when they were over the legal limit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all the time. It's yeah. all, the, all the time. So, you know, some of it's a matter of luck and, you know, circumstance, but, but yeah, it's Uber is your ally friends. <laughs> no, seriously, y'all like just, you know, make that plan ahead of time. Get, get a designated driver. That's a great thing about having a sober friend. You know, I'm the perpetual designated driver. Um, you know, no one ever needs to drive. Like, even if they've had two drinks, I'm like, give me your keys. Like, this is stupid. There's no reason to. And, you know, that's that's cool. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, just don't make that decision to begin with. But I was going to ask you what your advice was, but it seems like you pretty much just gave it. I, I guess because... <laughs> You know, we could, I, I understand that your approach is not the, the Nancy Reagan approach of... Like, oh, God, just, no. Right, no, obviously. No. So, <laughs> I guess what's your advice? Because people are going to try some drugs. I mean, whether they are acknowledging that or not, people mm-hmm. are going to do it. And it's going to be caffeine, it's going to be right. alcohol, it's going to be whatever. I have crazy philosophies on drugs, which I'm not going to get into <laughs> on this podcast, nor do I have time to. Yeah. But people are going to do some drugs. So, what's... If you had some advice, not to put you on the spot, oh, sorry. What, what would your advice be? Well, I would say for the rest of the world, um, you know, I just, I'm not a big fan of any kind of abstinence programs in general, whether it be about drugs or sex or Dare anything. Dare doesn't work. Right. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> and, and, you know, at the, the states that are the biggest proponents of abstinence programs also have like the highest teen pregnancy rates. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it just like it, it adds They're up. They're not educated about it. Exactly. So I think, and, and, you know, people would argue like, oh, if we're exposing them to, to it, then they're going to want to do it more. And it's like, I, that doesn't really work that way because mm-hmm. I think people are more curious when you make things taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And like that trip that I was talking about where, you know, it was, it was so funny because I was in like the talented and gifted program. It was called PACE, Plano Academic Creative Education. That's where we went to Italy. And I was 14. I remember, I remember PACE. Yeah, yeah totally. totally. <laughs> I, was, I was in that before I fell off the deep end and, and like barely graduated high school. But, uh, but yeah, so I went to Italy as part of a school trip for spring break. And over there, um, I don't know what the official drinking age is. It might actually be 18, but like there were 14 and 15 year olds drinking all over the place. Mm-hmm. But that's be- a cultural norm. Right. And because it's a cultural norm, because it was so accepted over there, they weren't acting like stupid American kids on spring they break. They were acting like adults drinking wine, mm-hmm. having conversations. No one was taking their clothes off or, you know, whatever. Although, 
you know, Europe's way more lax on all that stuff too, <laughs> which, you know, there's a lot to be said about that as well. But anyway, you know, so because they, it, it wasn't so taboo over there, people were, you know, just acting more like adults, having a, a, a glass of wine and a cigarette and carrying on a conversation, having a good time at the discotheque or whatever. So, you know, I would say that, that like we need to educate people and expose them to it. If we're not going to lower the drinking age, you know, whatever, or, you know, make at least weed legal everywhere, if not all other drugs, I would say we got to at least have real conversations about it. And, you know, my dad, um, he's always gotten high. And so one of the things he told me, which really made a lot of sense, you know, after the fact was that he didn't want to, first of all, he didn't want to be a hypocrite, but he also didn't want to tell me that, oh, weed was bad, never smoke weed. Because then there might be this sense that like, I, I smoke weed, I realize it's not that bad. Then anytime someone tells me heroin's bad, I'm not going to believe that. That's the either. D.A.R.E. program. Right. That's the D.A.R.E. program. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I would say have an honest conversation about it. Um, don't try to make it a police state or whatever with your mm -hmm. kids. Uh, you know, make it that way about sex too, for that matter. You know, just have an open dialogue about it as much as that might creep some people out and whatever might be uncomfortable. But, you know, just educate, 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 you know, just talk to people about what drugs actually do. And, and for the record, like one day, I mean, by the time I have kids that are, you know, curious about drugs or whatever, who knows what's going to be on the market. But if I had a kid now, I would tell them, like, if you're going to smoke something, smoke some weed. Do not smoke K2. <laughs> you know, mm, like, oh, my God, man. Because, <clears throat> you know, at the psych hospital, we had all kinds of people coming in completely losing their shit. And it was from K2. Oh, yeah, the uh, synthetic marijuana. Right, exactly. Which is nothing like marijuana. Exactly. And, you know, it. they sell it as incense. So, you know, and just like with the bath salts and whatever, but that's obviously, you know, a different thing. But I can't even say that it's worse because people have been losing their shit in the same way on K2, like trying to kill their parents. <sighs> and not only that, yeah, physical problems like kidney failure and everything. And the reason mm -hmm. it's happening you know, I would say weed's not legal. You make this other shit legal. And then in order to keep it legal, you keep changing the, the chemical structure of it without having any idea what it's going to do to a human sure. body or a human brain. And once again, that's the lack of education because right. how can you be educated on a constantly changing ingredient? Exactly. Whereas cannabis would stay the same. Yep. I mean, potency levels. Sure, differ, sure, sure. But you'd, you'd be able to at least educate the person more or less this is going to be your experience right and with k2 they're trying to tell them that it's that experience and then they have that i guess best case scenario they're like fuck weed yeah. <laughs> fuck that shit no totally but, totally but I mean, worst case scenario fucking you die or something or you kill like someone yeah that shit is fucked up i've seen that in action no it, it is um and and you know that's kind of like what i want to accomplish with this book and, and like on a more grandiose scale like when i have those dreams like i said of of, of being on conan or whatever and and uh um you know just doing the circuit right like becoming a circuit speaker and everything that's what i want to do is is educate people 
through my own experience, you know, about mental health issues, about depression, about drugs, because that's another thing too, that I think there's not enough education on for the general public, you know, is understanding depression. And y'all talked about that a lot, especially at the beginning of the podcast, definitely with Alex too. But when you were talking about y'all's friend who had PTSD and people just being so unaware mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah, we want to know warning signs to look for. Obviously when someone has PTSD or depression or bipolar, um, so, so that we can hopefully get them some help along mm-hmm. the way, but also just not being so ignorant to it and mm-hmm. insensitive to it and creating a culture where people feel like they can't share their struggles because they don't sure. see it as a disease. They see it as a moral shortcoming or a weakness of character, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so those are, are two things right there that, that through the course of this book, I, w- I would hope it would shed some light on those things. Like I want people to read it and, you know, for people in recovery, it, it's like, you know, this guy, like I've, I've had some of these same feelings as him talking about me, you know, like saying Adam's had some of these thoughts and feelings. I've had them too. I can identify with that. I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. I'm not a monster. I'm not morally bankrupt or whatever. Uh, and, and he seems to be doing okay, you know, more or less, mm-hmm. I'm still a work in progress. We all are. But, uh, but, you know, so I hope to help people in recovery from that standpoint, but then also people who aren't in recovery, they can read and be like, wow, I didn't know it was really like that. And, and like when I was in college and this is where the book starts, it begins with the first time I attempted suicide as an adult and actually ended up going to the emergency room and having my stomach pumped and everything like that whole experience when I got out of the hospital and talked to my roommate about it, you know, when I was in college there up in, uh, in Idaho you know, it, it was funny because I talked to him about it and he was very cool, very supportive, like trying to, you know, be there for me, like get me to go hang out with him, but also staying in with me if that's what I wanted to do, you know, just watch watch a ball game, watch a movie, whatever. But, you know, maybe a week or two after that all happened, he was like, man, I'm taking this psych class and we learned about depression and like, that really sucks, man. (laughs) Mm. You know, that was really sweet though. It was like, yeah, it does. And, and, you know, I just, I, I, I don't want to say I wish more people would know. Cause it's like, you know, you wish in one hand and shit in the other and see which gets filled first. But, but it's like, that's why I say I, I want to actually be that change, you know, instead of just wishing people knew more about it. I want to help people know more about it. I mean, you could make a hashtag. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know what's really sad about that oh, too. But I, I like that. Is, you, is you, you're you're taking action. <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's just so funny because um, so I decided to self-publish this book. Right, mm-hmm. like I I'd gotten so sick of waiting around, and and you know through the course of of not hearing back from literary agents, I also had people through my life said, I I have a friend who has a friend who's in publishing. Let let them read your book, and I'd be like, okay, and nothing ever came of that, and I got so sick of nothing happening, and I finally decided to stop being a victim, you know, and say like, okay, if I'm really that upset about this not happening about me not living my dream, then I need to do something about it. And so I got to this point where whatever fears I had of rejection and and all that stuff, 
it was overcome by how angry I was at, at like having this book collecting dust. You know what I mean? Like that's ridiculous. I have it sitting there and I'm not doing anything with it. And I started to learn about Kickstarter. You know, like I had uh, read about how those fans of Veronica Mars raised the money for the the movie adaptation of that show and, you know, got a whole movie launched and everything. And and so, like, I got familiar with how that worked and and I saw that they have a, a very active publishing section of that website. And, and, you know, so for anyone who's not familiar with Kickstarter, it's like basically a, a social media platform for uh, raising funds for a project, like not for a charity, but like you could raise funds to start a podcast. You could raise funds to uh, create an invention, um, you know, uh, open up a restaurant, film a movie, you know, just like all kinds of stuff. It's really cool. And so I, I said, okay, I'm going to go into self-publishing, which means that I need to pay for it, right? And so I decided to uh, start a Kickstarter program, and I am so not the social media person. Like, I've, you know, got some friends on Facebook or whatever, but I'm not on there very often. Um, and then I really had to get out there and network. And so I opened up a Twitter account and I have like 17 followers or something. Because, I know that feeling, man. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm not on there often enough and, 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 you know, and I don't really know how to work it. And it's like, there, here comes those old familiar feelings of rejection about like I, because, you know, on Facebook, I at least have my friends. And so I post something and for certain things, like, especially with this book, I got an overwhelming positive response, you know, people liking it and making comments and sharing it and whatever. And it's been great. But with Twitter, because I'm really new to all that and don't really know how to do it. It's like, I think I might've have had one person like ever favorite a tweet or (laughs) anything. So like, it's really sad, but but, um, but, you know, I had to be that change, so to speak. And, and like, I had to act as if, you know, like, and, uh, I, it was really a paradigm shift for me, you know? And, and so like, I got on social media and started networking for the book. I raised the funds through Kickstarters, you know, successfully. And, uh, and, and, you know, so I'm in that process right now. You made a hundred percent. Yeah. So the way Kickstarter works is that like, for example, on this one, I, I raised, $5,000. Like that's the goal I had to set because I did the math on how much it would cost to print the book and then uh how many, you know, how much money it costs per copy of the book after that and what I would need to do to even break even and it was like 5 grand, you know. And so the way Kickstarter works though is you set that goal at the beginning and you can either pick 30 days or 60 days. They suggest 30 days because it gives more of a sense of urgency to your project. And you have to raise 100% of those funds. If you raise 1,000%, then, then great. But if you raise 99%, you don't get any of the money. Nobody gets charged. Like, nothing happens. Um, and then the way Kickstarter functions as a business is that once you raise all that money, they take a certain percentage. You know, it's like 8 to 10% total of whatever you raised, right? And so, yeah, I raised all the five grand a little bit over. Is there a timeout for it? Like where it's like, okay, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so one of the, the first things that I, like I had already talked to my publisher out here. He's actually in Dallas, which is really cool. Cause a lot of the publishing companies are in New York, you know? And if I was going to self publish, I, I wanted 
you know, it to be with someone I could actually talk to in person if I needed to. And, I, and I've met with the guy. His name's Larry Luby. It's HIS Publishing. He's a super cool dude. Uh, but yeah, so I had already talked to him beforehand and he was nice enough to give me some pointers and spend some time with me on the phone, even though I didn't have any money for him yet. You know what I mean? He didn't just brush me off. Like I right. told him like, Hey, I'm going to start this Kickstarter program. So I got some quotes from him or whatever. And then I updated him like, Hey, I've started the Kickstarter program. Hopefully if this works, you know, after 30 days, I'll, I'll get that money pretty soon. And then I let him know like, Hey, I got the money. Let's get started on all this. You know? So I met with him. Um, and so where we are in that process was that I had some artwork done and, and we shot a video, me and my brother did for my Kickstarter page and my brother's super talented, right? Like he can do all kinds of things, but he is not a professional photographer and he's not, um, he didn't have professional equipment in that sense. And like, we just used one of my empty teaching rooms at Richland. Like no one was in, like it was right after class and no one was, was there afterward. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I just had him come in and, and we shot the video and, and we'd shot some pictures like over at my dad's warehouse and stuff. Cause it had the kind of gritty motif that I wanted. Um, and so it all worked for the Kickstarter campaign, but it's not that sort of high, those high quality images, so, uh, Larry over at the publishing company, he has a guy who designs covers and he took that motif and sort of recreated it. And just before I came over here today, I checked my email and, uh, this is the second time he sent me one. Cause the first time I, I had some corrections I wanted to make, you know, things that just, I was happy with how it looked overall, but some things I wanted to be done a little differently. So now today, just before I got here, he sent me not only the second proof of the covers and everything, but also like what the pages are going to look like and all that stuff. Awesome. So now I need to read through the book though and like actually make sure that there's not a bunch of typos. Like I already edited the book myself, but you know, just make sure that like through the process of him doing, you know, making it into the certain number of pages or whatever, that, that there's not like a page that just ends abruptly, you know, and those right. words just died somewhere else or whatever. Uh, so I need to go like read the whole book, you know, and I'm, but I'm going to drink some coffee and, you know, do that, <laughs> like get that done as soon as possible. Um, and the hope is like what today's the 10th. And I'm, I'm hoping to have this all done by January one. And so what's going to happen then is I'll be able to get everyone who contributed to the Kickstarter campaign, uh, a copy That's of the awesome. book, a physical copy. But then also at that point, what's really cool about this deal with my publishing company is that the book's going to be available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. And, and once again, it's called my problem is Adam, right? And if, is there still time for them to contribute to the Kickstarter? Is that done? No, that's done. Um, so yeah, once that's over, it's over. But what I will be able to do, and, and maybe you'll be able to, you know, like work this into the to the intro, you know, after you edit this or whatever. But uh, but like um, once I've got the book up and ready, what I can also do is set up my own PayPal account and everything, and, and use my old Kickstarter page as sort of like a portal to that. Um, so people can buy the book directly from me because yes, you know, I get more money that way, right. but also so like I can autograph it. Uh, God, that sounds pretentious too, but people, uh, people it, dig that. No, man. people do. do. People, people do. like it. Um, but also so like I could write a personal message in there. Uh, cause one thing that was really awesome, man, like to be totally honest, 
most of the Kickstarter contributors were friends and family, or at least yeah. friends of friends and family. But I had a couple um, that were like perfect strangers. And one of them, uh, you know, was this dude and shared his story with me, you know, and said like, Hey, I, I saw you on Kickstarter. And, and he let me know about his life and, and why he wanted to contribute to the campaign and why he wanted the book and like what he wanted me to write about in the personal message. And like, that was awesome. I was like, this is what it's all about. That is the coolest. Yeah. And so, you know, not that I need to justify wanting to be successful and everything, but to me, there, there are two purposes it serves. It's like, yes, there's my, quest for validation and, 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 you know, even past that, like, like fame and, you know, whatever, like I am kind of a ham and like that, who, you know, that's, I, I think that's dude still appreciating. Right. I again, like if you, if, if you either have a, have a podcast or dream of being a guest on a podcast, it's like, yeah, clearly you, you know, like you, you, you think you've got something to offer. Right. And, right. and you also like that feeling of, of being on stage, whatever that stage may be, whether it's a book or behind a microphone or whatever. But the more noble aspect of that is that like, if I'm successful and my book becomes a bestseller and whatever, that means more people are getting a message that I think needs to get out there, mm-hmm. you know? So again, like, I, I think it's totally fine to just want to be a rock star, right? Like there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, it's also pretty cool if you want to be a rock star, um, because the work that you're doing can actually like help people and stuff, you know? Absolutely. And and the reality is you're going to affect the person who reads it regardless of whether or not you want it to. Mm-hmm. So at least have the intention for whatever you're trying to do. So yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Uh, this has been awesome, man. Um, I don't know if you know this because you listened to Alex's episode yeah. and there was like a song break in the center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Ryan does original music for everybody's song, oh, cool. for everybody's episode. Yeah, I kind of got that. Yeah, yeah. So um, do you have a preferred genre or musical styling that you would like him to attempt? Oh, wow. Um, I'm kind of all and over. And I can't guarantee that he'll do it. No, 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 no. <laughs> it no. just helps no, him it's like, get I, some guidelines. I'm kind of all over the place with that stuff, man. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm wearing an old dirty bastard t-shirt. I don't right? think he can do that. <laughs> yeah, I can't do some, <laughs> some Wu-Tang. But, uh, but no, like. Although um, he does own a pair of shoes that say Wu-Tang on <laughs> But yeah. I, You're I, welcome, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind, sorry. Inside jokes don't have any place here. No, hey, um, man, it's your podcast. <laughs> I, I actually, I took a part of that out of my book, like where I went on a rant about something and then I even wrote and they're like, Hey, if, if y'all aren't digging this, it's my book. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? That's kind of funny, but maybe I'll leave that out. Like what, just that little comment or like, I still left all the stuff I was going on the rant about, but, but anyway, yeah, it's your podcast, man. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, I don't know. I, I think like I really, you know, I grew up with the, with the grunge, scene perfect you know and and i think if there's some way though that you can keep that grittiness and darkness but still have it be uplifting not like because i I don't want you to do like nirvana i hate myself and want to die like that's not the message (laughs) trying, trying to put out here um you know although that that 
was a song I definitely identified with at a time in my life. That's what know? got Ryan into guitar. I know this. Oh, cool, so man. You're, you're so, perfect with the grunge genre. Right on. So if there's some way we can keep all that but still have it be kind of uplifting and inspiring, maybe? I feel like he can do this. I'm actually fully confident that Ryan can pull specifically this one off completely. Right That'd on. That'd be perfect. I think he's going to like this request. Cool. So anyway, thank you very much. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, here's a song by Ryan Harris.
Thanks for listening to the episode. You can get Adam's book at myproblemisadam.com. And you might be thinking, but Josh, I can just go to amazon.com if I want books. You know what? There's nothing wrong with amazon.com. I'm a prime member myself. This isn't even an advertisement for Amazon. But if you like Adam, which you should, because that was our best episode ever, go to myproblemisadam.com. Buy the book from there because he gets more of the money if you do that. Also, you know what? You know what helps me? You know what helps Ryan? It's when you subscribe to this podcast and when you tell your friends about this podcast. So do that. Support Adam. Support great guests for this podcast. Also support us. Go to iTunes, rate us. Subscribe to us because it costs you nothing to do that. And we really appreciate it. And it's also my birthday week. Okay, bye.